It's ad break time. I'm pleased to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast remains proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning through Games and Simulations. This week, I have a very special announcement, which is that I will once again be teaching a class for their Certificate in Applied Game Design. Come take Using Games to Teach, What You Can Convey Through Play, with yours truly. The class runs from January 22nd to February 29th, and I would love to see you there. A link to the registration page is in the show notes. CLGS's latest game, 500-Year-Old Vampire, just finished a very successful campaign, but if you forgot to back it, you can now pre-order through BackerKit. The link is also in the show notes. I also want to plug my own Patreon. Your support means a lot to me, both emotionally and financially. Patreon money is what makes it possible to keep improving my channel by upgrading the equipment, and I'm also hoping to increase the amount of videos I can publish over the course of the next year. If you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm here in my podcast this week with two very special guests. Uh, I have Dr. Treyandrea Russworm. She is Professor of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California. And I also have Dr. Samantha Blackman. Uh, she is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Composition at Purdue University. How are y'all doing this afternoon? Great. Doing great. Thanks. I really appreciate having y'all on. I'm very excited to talk to you about Y'all do a lot of projects, but I brought you on initially to talk about the Black Games Archive, um, which is a really cool site that everybody should visit. Check the show notes. But uh, would you like to talk just about what the Black Games Archive is and maybe how y'all got started with it? Well, um, I can tell you what it is, and then maybe Sam will remember the origin story a little better than I do. There we uh, go. It's all kind of a blur to me, but... <laughs> <laughs> I so the Black Games Archive is a website. It's a database and an archive of games that um, relate to blackness and black culture in some way. So um, right now, you know, you can search the archive just alphabetically, looking at a list of games. You can also organize that list by decade, uh, so you can try to see some of the earlier games uh, that that you know may be in that in this domain. And it also is a portal for scholarship on like race and games and blackness in games. We profile developers uh, who are black developers who are working in the industry, um, but also players and people in the like fan community, content creator community, um, there's space for that. We have an amazing board of directors of folks from all over, like, you know, media studies, um, again, people that are in the industry, adjacent to the industry, working in a variety of different capacities. Um, and so we really wanted to create a space that allowed you to research uh, around the topic of blackness in games and also contribute, right? It's a very like contributory space where we need constant feedback and constant suggestions on things that we have missed because what we're finding with the project is that there are a lot of games that intersect with black identity, blackness, black culture, um, and the the medium of, of games and so um, right now it's currently in its in this very moment it's all video games but we're now also integrating um, tabletop games analog games into the mix so we want it to be a space where you can move across uh, platforms of course but also um, tabletop and digital and so i guess it's my turn to talk about how this how this came about um, so Trey and I were working on um, 
we were working on our Black Feminist Mixtape article. Um, and one of the things that we talk about in the Black Feminist Mixtape article is we look at kind of a history of like the presence of Black women in games and game studies and game development in different ways, right? Um, and um, while we were doing that, we talked about the fact that there was this, uh, this kind of Black-shaped hole <laughs> um, in video games, right? So that there's this, there's an, there was an absence of um, conversations about blackness in games um, and an archive uh, of games that, that focus on blackness. Um, so I think we kind of started talking about what it would look like to fill that hole. Um, and that started the conversation um, about the Black Games Archive. And we talked back and forth um, for a while about it. And finally, we kind of decided, um, oh gosh, what was it? Like late 2021? Wait, what's this? Uh, no, I, I don't know time anymore. <laughs> I was like, wait, I was like, wait, what was it? We started talking like mid-late 2022 about, um, about, um, what an archive would look like and if it was something we could do. Right. And we started thinking about other projects that already existed that do that kind of work. Um, like, uh, like the queer games archive. Right. Um, yes. so that's one of the things that we, um, started to, to talk about, like what we saw there, um, what we would want to pull from there, what would necessarily be different. Um, uh, not just in terms of not just in terms of representation and blackness, but also just kind of in terms of what we wanted to make sure that we preserve, what we wanted to make sure we archived, and how we wanted that archive to operate, right? Um, and and how we wanted our archive, not to say that the queer games archive is not inclusive because it is, right? Um, but how we wanted to make sure that we were also inclusive, and what ways we wanted to make sure we kind of push forward that uh, that inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Actually, that leads right into um, a question I have for you. I saw in a video that y'all recorded on YouTube a while back, which I'll also link in the show notes, where you talked about kind of the, the philosophy behind what is a Black game and what constitutes Blackness and can go into the Black Games archive. Right. And it seemed like there'd been a lot of really interesting behind-the-scenes discussions about this, mm -hmm. uh, but that <laughs> y'all had ultimately settled on the most inclusive model that you possibly could so what kind of conversations went into that and you know how you know what kind of blind spots did you encounter along the way or like ways that you surprised yourself in terms of how you wanted to define things going forward with this archive well i think we threw that question around a lot you know just in casual conversation on not your mama's gamer um you know sam's podcast uh there have been a number of episodes that are about race and games and blackness and games and um i've had the the I've had the I've been able to be a guest. I've, I guess I've had the, the I want to say the luxury uh, of, of being a guest, the honor of being a guest on on that podcast and being a part of those conversations. And I think you know that question of what is a black game. It the answer to that is going to differ depending on who who you ask. So there's probably dozens, if not hundreds, of answers of what is a black game. And I mean, one easy place to start is thinking about oh, are there black characters in the game? Can can I play you know as a black character um thinking of mafia three where you play as lincoln clay who's actually biracial 
but you know also passes as black in the context that he's in right so so you might actually think well is that a black game you know because i see some character representation um but then what about you know the labor and the people who make and design games does it matter if um it's made by a black person right this is their project but it doesn't have any characters in it or it doesn't have any overt references to to black identity is that still count as you know a black game so we thought that that's a thorny question, actually, and a complex question to answer. And so um, it, the database, the archive became a way for us to try to address that, but also, and this is where the inclusive, inclusive part comes in, also kind of broadening conceptually what we mean by that or what's possible by that. Because mm -hmm. importantly, we didn't want to be gatekeepers and look at a list of games that have been published over the years and say, that's black, that's not black, that's black, that's not black, right? Inevitably, there is a selection process when you're doing anything. Um, however, we wanted to make sure that it was broad enough to kind of have some traction and make sense in the way that like identity, the complex ways that identity circulates and is formed, you know, culturally and socially and politically. So the video that you're referring to is I think the video introduction to the archive and the taxonomy for the archive, which is a way of us, which became a way for us to talk about what to include because it couldn't mm -hmm. just include every single game ever made, but we wanted to have some, 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 some parameters for it to consider. And so we did include things like characters. Are there black playable characters, right? Uh, where there are very few in the history of video games, games where you can actually play as a black character. So we have black playable characters, but then we had black non-playable characters. Is there a black sidekick anywhere in the house? You know, is there that one black friend who's in the story? You know, it does a black character uh, appear in this game and, and, you know, to what extent? Maybe they have to be kind of significant side, uh, secondary characters. Um, so... We did include characters, but we also included things like the development, you know, team and process and how that involved uh, people of color, black people. Voice acting, right, is another area uh, where maybe this is a game that, you know, the primary characters were were played by black actors. Um, mechanics, you know, even when you're thinking about how to play something and the things that you can do, the actions you can do in a game, uh, we found that there are some that refer back to or comment on um, like black live experiences or part aspects of black history, et cetera. So we found that pretty interesting, but there's a long list, right? It's like mechanics, narrative themes, characters, politics, um, intersectionality, um, probably forgetting some the development. Yeah, we have, so we have 13 different taxonomical terms, right? Um, that we, that we use to kind of, uh, to categorize, to classify, to classify games that, that exist on the Black Games or in the Black Games archive. Um, and I think you ask an interesting question about like how we kind of came, how we kind of come to this and what those conversations look like. Because Trey and I, um, we think about things in very, in, not all the time, but we think about some things in very different ways, right? Which is why we, we kind of decided that we needed to come up with uh, a taxonomy that we could we could use a taxonomy that we could use to not only categorize but that we can use to define right um and then making sure that we're not being gatekeepers because we we all know that all kinds of archives archives museums etc um just like history is very political right and that the per that people in power and people with privilege are those who kind of make those things um who make those things and and 
at the at the expense of those outside. And that's one thing we didn't want to do. Um, so one of the things that we have done is like made sure that that folks have access to we have a Google form like that. So people can suggest games that can, that they think should be included on in the archive. Right. Along with like how, why they think that game belongs in the archive. Can't just say because it's my favorite game and I'm black. So they should be in the black games archive. <laughs> but thinking about like any of the term, the categories or the terms that already exist, you can map uh, the current taxonomy uh, onto it, or you can offer up a different reason, right? Um, and that's something that we go through, um, that we go through and we look at and we think about um, in terms of like what's there and what should be there um, and giving everybody a voice, right? Um, and giving everybody a voice in the creation of this archive. Oh, that leads so perfectly into one of the things I want to talk to y'all about, uh, which was, um, you know, you're, you're professors, you're doing research work, you are publishing extensively. Um, I poked around and found like a Purdue job listing for uh, students to help with the Black Games Archive. And so this is an academic project that's getting academic support. Uh, but also, a lot of the links on the site and a lot of the way that y'all communicate is through communicate with the public. You have a forum so people can submit games. Um, you know, Sam, you are a podcaster and you have a, a very long running podcast uh, that is just hanging out of there on the internet for us all to enjoy. And so who do you think of as your target audience and how do you balance between research and accessibility, especially because you've expressed concerns about making sure that this is for everyone and that we're not accidentally privileging, say, an academic perspective, which is where we, all three of us, have a privilege. Okay, I'm, I'm going to jump in first here and say it's interesting that you say that because I always and I always make this I always make this claim. I always tell people I'm an anti-academic, um, <laughs> which I know sounds very strange to people um, because uh, my work doesn't my work in many ways. You know, I, I do publish, but my work doesn't look like the work of many of, of many other of my colleagues. Right. Um, I it has always been my goal to have my work, my scholarship, my research be accessible to physically and intellectually accessible to everyone, right? So I look to create my I look to create my scholarship in a space um, that is inhabited by um, my game studies work specifically, right? By gamers, by developers, by academics, by anyone in and around games. Um, and and so yeah, I have a podcast that's been running. It'll be thirteen years in January. Um, as I that's can't awesome that long. It'll be yeah, it'll be thirteen years in January. Um, I've I've um, I'm also a content creator, right? I stream. I have streamed uh, for a very long time. I was you know I stream on Twitch now. I was partnered on Mixer uh, before Mixer shut down for three or four years. I can't remember. Uh, but one of the things that I've always done, and Trey has Trey has actually come on stream with me, right? One of the things that I I have always done is like regularly. I try to do it monthly. Sometimes it doesn't get to be monthly because schedules um, is to bring like industry folks, game studies folks, um, like on stream with me to play games and talk about their work, right? Their development work, their research, the games that we're playing, et cetera, right? Um, so making, making a, creating a space um, for all the people who are invested in games in some way, 
um, to kind of coexist and have conversations together. Yeah. And I would say to me, for me, um, the public facing side of my identity as an academic has slowly grown over time. I've been a lot less public facing than Sam for sure. Um, and it's weird because all of my like academic scholarship is on popular culture. You know, it's on film and television and video games. So I was always doing, um, you know, studying very popular objects as a part of my, my path. Uh, but I always assessed myself as in a very traditional, I think accurately, traditional academic content, context. And, you know, prior to having tenure, I was, you know, told, look, I was I was sort of on the cusp of doing some digital humanities stuff when it was, um, you know, kind of newer on the scene, not not brand new, but digital humanities kind of scholarship and work. And a lot of it is database creating. A lot of it is public facing, you know, archival type projects. But, you know, this was probably 13, 14 years ago. And I was discouraged from doing that because at the time in the institutional context that I was in, there really wasn't support for evaluating that in a fair way so that it would count toward tenure for like junior scholars, you know, uh, trying to secure the, the, what are they called? The golden handcuffs of tenure in <laughs> academic context. I don't know if they're that, but, um, but that job security really actually. So I always thought in the context that I was in, I, I needed to just focus on articles, books, mostly books. And that's what I did. And um, it wasn't until later that I thought, well, look, I've already done that stuff. I'm, you know, I've achieved some of these things. Um, now I can sort of open up. And at this point in my career, now I'm a supposedly a senior scholar. Uh, <laughs> I'm a um, senior citizen. I'm not really there yet in my mind, but, you know, in terms of the profession, I'm a more senior person. And I do feel finally a little more freer to do things that like the Black Games Archive that I probably wouldn't have done. I know I wouldn't have done it, you know, uh, 10, 13 years ago or so. And and we talked, you know, about our connection to the University of Chicago. I'm also coming from a space like that in a very yeah. sort of theoretically like centered <clears throat> PhD program. And, you know, I, I was I was just kind of molded into a particular type of scholar, I think. Uh, so, yeah, this is new to me and I still don't do as much of it as I as I, you know, I still kind of have a foot in, I think, both registers. I'm not a. I don't know how, I forget how you describe yourself, Sam, as an anti-academic, an anti-academic. I'm definitely not that. I, mean, I still see, yeah, I still support and still want to write uh, a lot of academics texts that are for primary academic audience, right? So um, academic, university press publishing and books. I'm a, I'm a book editor, series editor. So I still value that work, but I also sort of see it both ways where now, for me at least, um, having an audience that's beyond an academic audience is appealing. But difficult, difficult in a different way, I would say, like whole different skill set. And I'm not, you know, I'm new at that. That is really interesting. So didn't, just out of curiosity, so on the university side of things, you know, um, one of the reasons I left academia and I've been out, I got my PhD in 2014, uh, you know, and that was at Yale, also a very traditional program. So I didn't realize that you could even do scholarship about popular stuff. I mean, I did, you know, Latin and Greek, like just dead language stuff. And so I had no idea this entire world was out there. <laughs> um, but was it just there and I missed it? Or has academia become more open to alternative ways of gathering, expressing, and storing 
knowledge um, over the past decade? It's definitely changed. It's definitely changed, you know, just in terms of um, the curricular offerings, you know, so I think that in terms of even veering toward different types of more popular formats, but you could always study film, like the place like the University of Chicago, you could always study film, but it tended to be early film, early cinema. <laughs> you know, I remember there, I, I, my project was very contemporary. It was like 60s and 70s, black popular film and television. And there was really nothing, you know, kind of like that, right? At the time, people weren't really gravitating toward that. Um, they were doing a lot of like, restoration projects, early cinema, early cinema history. And so it was a very sort of, you know, kind of conservative space. Uh, but it's changed exponentially, not only in terms of the objects of study, but in terms of like the scholarly output and what might count as scholarly output. So now when I review tenure files for like junior faculty, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot more variety in what people do, digital publishing, like self-published stuff and, you know, other kinds of works that are not like just university art, university uh, press books or journal articles, you know, peer reviewed journal articles. So I think the landscape has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And I would say even in the in the last because I've been doing game studies for 20 years. Um, wait. <laughs> I always forget how old I am. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, no, it's been longer than that. Yes, I've been doing um, game studies now for like almost 25 years, right? Um, and yeah, early on, um, it was it was it was kind of very difficult um to and it, it is it's it's better for like the current generation of 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 junior scholars right because folks like Trey and I have been doing this for a while and doing it in different ways right um and doing it in different ways so that uh, I, I mean I know that even I've received academic awards for my podcast um I have received like academic awards for things that I think about um, having written specifically uh, for a different audience, for a non-academic audience, or for an audience that was not solely academic, um, and then like what was it? it was right before the right before the panini, right before the pepperoni pizza, uh, I got the SIGDOC Lifetime Achievement Award for um, for design communication and game design, right? And these are things that I would never have that I never kind of shoot for again, because yes, I understand I operate and I exist and I create in an academic space, but that is not my only audience. I don't even see that as being uh, my primary audience. I see all of my audiences as being equal, right? Um, so when I get any kind of like recognition, like from academia, it's always kind of startling, um, to me, but that's something that didn't happen early on. And that was a, it was a struggle. Like I said, I've been doing this for almost 25 years now. And, um, and it was a struggle early on to constantly have to, um, make my work relevant in an academic context, right? Um, like being in, and being in rhetoric and composition and existing in a space that is also like professional and technical, uh, it's also professional and technical communication based. Um, not that those are, not that those are the same field, but I also, uh, I also teach in, in, in uh, PWTC and, and 
But being able to situate myself in those spaces and say, hey, we're, this is how my work is relevant to techcom, or this is how my work is relevant to professional writing, right? When we're starting to talk about design and design communication and how um, how we as techcom scholars or, P, or professional writing scholars and teachers um, can use this medium um, to help prepare our students um, for lives that they'll live after they leave us, right? Um, when I say leave us, I don't mean like this earth, I mean like leave our program, right? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to, uh, contextualize your work, um, when it is not traditionally, and I should say I'm not a traditional academic, not I'm anti-academic because I appreciate academic work and I, cause I create academic work, but I'm not traditionally academic. Um, and I don't want to be, I never have. That's never been my goal. So, yeah. Nice. So, Trey, you said something that piqued my interest uh, a few minutes ago. She's talking about film studies and how that's sort of an accepted academic tradition, but that people like to look at older films. Right. Um, yeah. And I feel like video games have had kind of the opposite trajectory where we take video games more seriously now and they take themselves more seriously now. So... What kinds of, I guess, older games that might surprise us have ended up in the Black Games Archive? And kind of like following that, um, you know, I, I have actually had Adrian Shaw on the show to talk about the Queer Games Archive. Um, and she had a lot to say about game preservation and how difficult it is to access older materials. So what kinds of issues have you run across with this forming the BGA? And then also, you know, what are some gems that you've discovered along the way? Woo, that's a great question. Okay, so right now I'm gonna just tackle like a little slice of it, you know, sort of like the first question. Of, I think inherent in this is this like preservation um, challenge, right? That my my stance has been so far that the industry uh, as a whole, and then I would say large companies like large video game publishers and developers in general are not very keen on their the preservation of their games over historically, right? They're not very interested in a way um, in preserving, certainly in preserving access to those games. And maybe internally they do have a historian, do have historians, librarians or something, archivists, you know, that, that kind of keep uh, up with all of the stuff that they've published over the years and have playable copies of things, but I would doubt that, <laughs> but but at least in a public facing sense, there are, unless they're tied to, okay, so like Atari, um, you know, which is the, one of the, not the first, but one of the early um, companies that released a game console in the early 70s. And so Atari has released several like compilations, collections of their old games. And in fact, they have um, a game that you could buy, a game that you could buy that is, is like a hundred Atari games, and it's it's like the Atari Anniversary Collection has basically it's like a museum format. You you scroll through it. There's interviews. There's sort of like here's the history of Pong. You know, uh, their first kind of like huge hit, and you can play all these early titles in one place. Now that is rare because most you know publishers, most companies don't do this, and it makes it really really hard. Not so much to find out that a game existed, but definitely to play it. 
So definitely to play the game um, and archive any gameplay footage or other, other uh, materials related to that game really hard. So there is a recency bias in the archive and we're trying to correct that, you know, by doing research and figuring out what else is there, what comes earlier. I mean, we know that, you know, for our purposes, the game industry starts in the 70s. So we would be going, which is not that long ago, I think, as someone who was also born in the 70s, I feel like that should be a doable block of time to cover, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but it's not because they're, you know, of the ephemeral nature of, of, of digital preservation and digital access. So um, there are a lot of games that are out there that we that are earlier that we don't have yet on the on the archive, even just listed on the archive with bibliographic data, let alone the other ambition, which is to post videos of, you know, playthroughs of some of these games so that we have that history preserved there. Um, so that is that is difficult. So now there, but there were even more interesting questions that you, I think you asked, and I say more interesting because I just feel worn out by the preservation reality. You know, <laughs> just demoralized by like even if we find, hey, okay, so like the earliest game we have on our list right now is Heavyweight Champion, uh, 1976. So if we, and I, there are games that are related to black culture and blackness that are earlier than this for sure, but this is, this is where we started. Uh, And so we see that it was an arcade game uh, developed by Sega. It had playable black characters. That's all we have for the taxonomy so far, because we haven't played it, right? So when it comes to evaluating what else might be applicable to a game, if there's no gameplay footage and we haven't played it, right? We haven't seen someone play it. It's very hard for us to even flesh out how relevant it is to black culture you know because historically we can only do the surface reading of that and so that's really challenging that you know we you know for us uh they're just going to be games that we don't know now people again from the crowdsource perspective may have a, a version of this and they'll see hey you guys miss this or this and this um that's in this game that you didn't know about and so that will help us flesh it out over time uh so yeah that's the earliest game on the archive so far mm-hmm. and i know there will be other there'll be earlier games than this um i mean we have to you know, cull through things like the Atari collection and look, take another look at some of those titles. And again, we don't, that doesn't tell us the backstory of who worked on them and all of that as well. So it's incredibly hard to really establish that, but also exciting because it means that a project like this is going to be ongoing. It's never going to be complete. It's always going to have a ton of new games that we are not hitting on that are ready, you know, that we need to get ready to uh, post to the site. So there's always going to be work from it and around it. Um, And that that is either demoralizing or exciting. And I choose exciting (laughs) to to be the mode, uh, the modality that I'll I'll approach it with. Um, But then I'll just answer one of your other questions, which was like, what are there? What are some surprises to me? And I'm going to say, the one surprise is Bebe's Kids. So Bebe's Kids, <laughs> that's going to be like long, a long-standing kind of joke between Sam and I. But like, I never knew there was a Bebe's Kids game. Um, Bebe's Kids is a, it was a, what did it start out? I think it started out as a TV show. It started out as a It was a, a segment, skit on a Living skit Color, right? In Living Color. So mm-hmm. this is 90s. And it started, it's a little animated like skit. Uh, Bebe's kids were bad, right? <laughs> so like Bebe's kids, I don't know if it's it's politically correct to say these kids were bad, but they were active. They were you know engaged. They were hard to keep up with. 
and uh these they were a bit unruly family they were some unruly kids yeah Ener- energetic right <laughs> So um, that was the skit. And so there's a game, you know, version of Baby's Kids. And I didn't know this existed. There were a lot of like licensed property kind of, you know, hey, let's cash in on the games market because it's lucrative. So there's a lot of stuff like that, like a lot of black television shows and films that just suddenly had a game. Um, Another Living Color you know, the TV show kind of game related content is Homie the Clown. Homie the Clown. I did not know this was also a game at the time. So have we played those games yet? No. I mean, they're going to be probably on systems that uh, are hard to to get a handle on. Well, this one is on the Super Nintendo. So that's not as hard to get a hold of. But 1994, Super Nintendo. So far, the taxonomy says it has playable Black characters and narrative themes. (laughs) You know, they relate to Blackness. Um, there's also, you know, black culture. So I would add some other stuff. There's some other intersections with black culture that uh, could end up there. But those are the surprises for me and that question of archive and access and, you know, the challenges of, of even doing that. I think, and you would say challenges. I, I like to think of them as opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting because I'm a little older than Trey. Um, so how much. I, I don't want to talk about how much. <laughs> I, I don't know that we're that far apart, age. Yeah. I'm almost 10 we're years older than you, Trey. And we're all under 40. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and I think it's I think it's interesting. I think there are opportunities, right? There are these opportunities to go back and engage with uh this material in some very interesting ways. I, I love archives. Um, uh, this would technically be my third archival project. Um, mm-hmm. This will be my third archival project um, kind of that I've worked on like in my career. And I, I love getting lost in archives. Um, and just to like sit with things that exist um, and belong in an archive and think about like, where they exist and how they intersect with not only other things in the archive, but things outside of the archive as well, right? To start getting into and thinking about kind of the intersectional nature of these things um, is a lot of fun, right? And you mentioned one of the things you found when you were looking around was look at was the the research project that I'm doing with um, with students um, that revolves around the Black Games Archive, but having being able to introduce and ha- introduce these games and the 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 analysis that we're doing of these games to students who who like literally their parents weren't even born when some of these <laughs> games came out, right? And having them, you know, and having them have that opportunity um, to play these games, right? Um, and that's one of the things that that we have um, the researchers, the the student researchers that are working with us doing is is making is creating game footage, right? Um, which is a lot of fun um, to have conversations with them about the games that they're playing, right? Because then they get a better understanding of um, of games and blackness and the ways that we're using these taxonomical terms to talk about blackness than they ever would just reading an article that we publish. Right. Um, and that brings me joy. 
<laughs> so I, I I see this as an opportunity, right? Because I, I, you know, I get to talk to students and they're like, well, I played this game. One, I never knew this game existed or games like this existed, right? Um, and I have one student uh, who's working on the project who uh, over, over uh, summer break um, had a conversation with an adult in their, uh, not, not that they're not an adult, they are, um, but an older person in their life. Um, that, and they got the opportunity to explain to them um, the Black Games Archive and how like Blackness in games and Black culture and Black representation in games was a thing and important because this person played games but, had, but never knew <laughs> that Black games were a thing. Right. And they were like, because I think that the the term the expression or the phrase they had used was like, oh, that must be a very small archive. <laughs> and because, you know, they don't have that understanding because these things are not kind of readily visible. Right. So it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to bring visibility to blackness in games. I want to put a pin in that and come back to that. Y'all, this has just been such a rich vein here. So, uh, Sam, one thing I, you did help answer was how are you getting all this gameplay footage? And clearly, we get the students to do it. Fantastic. And I know that y'all are probably doing it too. So, um, when you are looking at footage for the archive, do you feel a need to actually have someone on your team play the games through? Or are playthroughs that are on the internet already considered fair game? for this research. Uh, do you see a distinction between a game that somebody has played, you know, trained by and through the archive versus something that's just online to witness? Yeah. So, oh, I was going to say so far, we've just been creating new footage for it mm -hmm. because we're looking for, for what we want to have primarily is commentary free gameplay footage. Right. So just gameplay footage. We are also doing critical discussions of games and critical let's plays. But but we don't I, at least I don't think we need to have those. I mean, in a perfect world, we'd have them for every entry in the archive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe one day they will. There will be that. Um, but what I do want to have for as many games in the archive as possible are just like actual kind of straight gameplay footage. Right. Um, so that even though people don't have access to play the game, they can actually see the game played without commentary. Right. So that they can engage with it in a way that is similar to what they would experience if they were playing the games themselves. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It does. Yeah. And I think we don't want to rely on the, the fact that or the hope that already recorded like gameplay footage that's on YouTube or Twitch will be there. Right. Because we already have an ephemeral problem with the medium itself that things will disappear and suddenly be gone. And so, you know, for lots of reasons, the content that already exists that would show some of this uh, can be gone. And, and so, it, it, but it's a problem that we have to internally face too, is what do we do with all these huge video files yeah. of the gameplay footage and where do we store them and how, where are they going to be stored and located over time? Because, you know, servers will go down and companies will get sold and hardware, will, hardware that we have drives will corrupt. And so, you know, it's not an easy challenge 
to to even just say we're doing it ourselves because we don't trust that it'll be there even if we link you got to get permission you know let's link to someone else's content and then those could be dead links in you know a year or 10 years or whatever so mm-hmm. um yeah it's a tough question oh, we I, sh- I do want to say that we are hoping to build a, a relationship with other entities like museums so like the strong the museum of play the strong museum um you know we've been in conversation with them about collecting some of the materials related to the black games archive and working with developers and other folks who appear on the list to have kind of like a curated set of exhibits and content that will reside there too so maybe part of the answer is having not only multiple ways to store whatever we do capture uh but having multiple types of repositories too and i'm sorry i was gonna say and like i said even though I even though I have done archival projects before, I am not an archivist, right? Um, but we do have an advising archivist on our board of directors, right? Yep. Um, because we recognize that that is an expertise that regardless of whether or not I, we have practical kind of uh, experience with, we uh, we are not archivists like in the in the official sense, right? We're creating an archive, but we're not archivists. So we need someone, who is um, who is an archivist who does have that specific expertise and that specific set of skills to advise us along this uh, along this journey, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have another. I guess I don't know if it's an ethical question or a technical question with regard to getting access to older games. So I'll be real. We got a retro. <laughs> we got a retro pie in this house. My boyfriend loves all those little emulators and ROMs. Are because y'all are working with academic backing, you have a board of directors. This has to be, you know, an academically above board project. Does that mean that you can't use emulators, ROMs, like you can't get an old game that you can't normally have access to on, you know, a retro pie? You know, what what kind of limits have y'all set for yourselves in that regard? That's really a good question. <laughs> <laughs> By any means necessary. <laughs> I feel like if nobody can profit from the sale of the game, there shouldn't yeah. be a problem. But and you know, this is where I would defer to our archivists, right? Like, because um there are all kinds of complicated fair use um, you know, acts or fair use doctrines or assumptions around media content for educational purposes. Yeah. So it really depends on how this project gets classified at any given time. Um, and I think that I would just say, speaking for myself, not for, you know, the role that it'll play in the archive, is that I'm not opposed, like as a teacher, as a professor, I am not opposed to using emulators. And there's some that are uh, seemingly a little more legit, you know, that are like a part of a more sort of official project. And when I'm teaching a class, like I, I just, I'm teaching this class that is sort of a history of video games. It's just not really only that, but at least the beginning of the class is like the history of the medium. And we're looking at some really early games that don't exist on an Atari collection, right? Because Atari, that's an anomaly that that would be there. Um, And there really was no other way to play it except to say, here's a link to this emulator and we're going to use it, right? So, but again, no one's profiting from it. We're not even streaming. It wasn't public or anything. Mm -hmm. So personally and professionally, I'm not against that. Um, For the archive, we we haven't had to do that yet because all of our footage collection has been relatively new stuff uh, just because it's easier to tackle but we will soon have to tackle that and I will just throw out there that part of what we do on the 
on the archive is we feature certain games. So each time the website refreshes, we're featuring two di two different games. So we try to do a deeper dive there and have more content. Now, when we start featuring games that are older or inaccessible, right, that then we're really going to run into this problem head on and have to, um, you know, have to have to make a decision about what we're doing about that. But we're going to defer to people who we're going to we're going to we're going to get consultation from the people who have been studying like the copyright laws and wars and what's going on with that. And so, you know, we would have to tap into our networks uh, around those things. So they're constantly changing mm -hmm. these policies. And, and I think that that, the yes, the, they're constantly changing. And I think that uh, also something that is useful for us is that we're not making these um, games accessible to other people to play mm -hmm. but rather providing footage for right which is like at this current moment right where where we have that safer area because of uh fair use for act for educational purposes right um and and trey's absolutely right like what i i when i teach older games in um uh, in my classes like i have Oh gosh, I think I have, and I always say this and, and it still holds true because I replace stuff, but I have every console I've ever owned. So I have consoles that go back to the seventies. Um, and we want to talk about space, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have consoles that go back to the seventies, but I'm not carrying all this equipment into campus, right? So I, I know in my own in my own mind, in my own heart of hearts, that games that I'm covering, I own physically, right? Um, and I feel, and because technically um, with, uh, technically at this moment, uh, media that you own physically, you're allowed to uh, have a copy of uh, for preservation purposes. Um, but yeah, when we when we start getting into um, when we start getting into some of the other stuff, uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be more difficult. I was thinking about that as I was going through the archive, like recently is like all this Muriel Treme stuff. And I'm like, I was like, I didn't even know most of this existed before yeah. we started working on the archive. I'll jump in and I'll say Muriel Treme is credited with being like the first um, black woman game designer. Yeah. And so she has a lot of a lot of like non-commercially released games or if they were commercially released, it was a very small on a very small scale. Mm -hmm. um, so she's really important, like historical figure, but accessing those works, you know, whoo. Yeah, to feature them and you know be able to engage them. Um, that's where we really need the help of like museums and other types of curators to get the physical copies and physical renditions and materials around that stuff. Mm -hmm. That actually is it to something I wanted to ask. So um, Sam, going back to something you said uh, that you know a student of yours had told a trusted person in their life about this project. I'm like, well, that must be a small archive then. So it, it makes me think back to, you know, I had Aaron Trammell on earlier this season to talk about his mm -hmm. book, The Privilege of Play, and kind of how nerdy activities tend to flourish in white dominated spaces. So model trains, Dungeons and Dragons, wargaming. Um, and to what extent is that true for video gaming? And then also because you've been looking back into the past and you've been finding all these earlier designers, um, you know, y'all have been gamers, it sounds like as a lifelong pursuit on your own. Did you find things that existed at times when you were playing and you just never saw them? 
And so it kind of made you look back on your own gaming past mm. in a different way. Mm. Mm -hmm. For me, yes. I mean, um, and, and I've been gaming for, wait, I always, <laughs> I always have to count. I've been gaming for uh, 47 years now. And, um, but earlier I had a, gotten a very niche, like, uh, a very kind of niche gaming, game, gaming library, right? I played a lot of JRPGs. Um, I played a lot of JRPGs and there's, there weren't a lot of black people in JRPGs <laughs> and there still aren't, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but so a, a lot of stuff that, that especially like during my own, um, kind of period of non-academic inquiry into games. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I that I had never come across. Um, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, especially like the early, early sports games. I mean, my early, uh, my sports games, uh, when I played a lot of sports games were like, were, were basketball and Madden football, right? Um, so a lot of the earlier uh, a lot of the earlier sports games just kind of were were not on my radar at all. Um, so yeah, and like I said, like the Muriel Treme stuff was in that because that was in the seventies. And uh, I mean, honestly, I was far too young to play some of the stuff she was developing <laughs> in, in the eighties. A lot of it was in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, in the seventies. So in the eighties, yeah, I was far too young mm -hmm. to to play. Uh, most of that stuff because a lot of because some of it had adult content um and mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah. i was too young to play that kind of stuff yeah uh well i'm middle-aged so everything makes me think about my past <laughs> like the time ahead you know everything is like super reflexive in that way of like oh wow the 90s was that long ago now you know so um so yeah i i think so i think that there's a lot of surprises there and I, I the biggest takeaway for me in looking back at some of the older stuff that was definitely not on my radar are just all those ties with like black popular culture and games. So not only, you know, does the music industry, for example, um, you know, like hip hop and jazz and other kind of musical forms um, coexist with the start of the industry. So like a, even if a game didn't seem to be about race or black people or whatever, quite often the soundtracks were right so all the music uh was you know cha changing how we would experience that game potentially uh because of the uh, you know the, the vibe that the music creates the tone um so there's one thing there but the other thing was just how directly like black popular film and television just shows up in the industry like i would not have thought that if i weren't doing this project and i didn't see this because i never played like i said baby's kids homie the clown um Beverly Hills Cop, you know, there was a game, Michael, uh, Michael Jackson, Moonwalker, I think it is, you know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, there's all this stuff. So I kind of like the nerd in me, but also like the nostalgic middle-aged person wants to just like have those games and some easy to play way. You know, I don't want to change th like five different systems and have blowing in my Nintendo to try to get it to work. I don't want to do all that. Okay. I just want to turn on one thing and play all of those games and sit and think about it both, you know, uh, as a fan of the medium and as a scholar and engage it that way. Right. I don't want to do all that work of, of, of playing around with the hardware. 
I mean, that's really fair. So, uh, <laughs> but I have a question for you because you got ama- amazing questions. Okay. And I want to just like maybe try to get some tabletop game like conversation in here. But I, I want to go there. You. So that's perfect. Yes. We're okay. like in sync so, on this interview. So. This is a self serving question, um, but or a mutually self serving question on behalf of us in the Black Games Archive. Because I want to ask you have you ever played any board games, any tabletop games? I don't even know which you use those terms interchangeably. Are they different in this space? I'm going to learn because, like I said, the archive is starting to integrate this. Um, so I don't know. Are, 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 are the terms interchangeable? Board games, tabletop games, analog games? Does it matter? It depends on who you ask. So some oh, people, okay. I use them all interchangeably. But I also had several arguments this year about what a war game is versus a conflict simulation versus a whatever. Like, honestly, I think that you just use what works in your context and okay. quit being difficult. Uh, yeah. But there will be somebody who's a putz about it and don't listen. Um, okay. <laughs> that's Got what I would it. say. Uh, some Got people it. will see tabletop as possibly closer to role-playing. If you say board game, people assume that it's boards or cards or components mm-hmm. that you play with on a table. And analog basically means anything that's not digital on the computer. Okay. Maybe so the analog is what I mean, yeah. you know, because yeah. I mean all of it. But um, but some okay. board games now have apps that people didn't bitch about. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, is there anything in that space that you've played or that you know about that makes you think of Black culture or Blackness in any way? You know, because like we have Aaron, who's really great and is helping us with the list. And there's games that we know that are on our radar. And so we want to build conversation around this sort of growing archive of non-digital games but i wonder in your experience have you ever played anything uh, a game where you know it maybe fits the taxonomy right like really broadly construed yeah so i'm a big historical gamer and so the games that i'm the most excited about are on the way so i have a pre-order in for this from gmt but there is a gamer out there who does not use their real name called Mm -hmm. non-breaking space they're publishing game through gmt called cross bronx expressway and it is a historical game about the destruction of the Bronx to build a highway. Whoa. And it's like the, the city and the people and the politicians and everybody kind of getting into it with each other to negotiate how this is going to happen and, you know, pushing on each other. It's like a conflict, but not a, not a military one over mm-hmm. a neighborhood in, in the mm. form of a game. Now, is this out yet? This is coming soon. It's coming soon. Um, But I can put you in touch if you want to play it digitally because it is out there. Um, I want to. (laughs) I want to try it. Um, There are some games. So I know that Rap Gods was made quite the splash when it came out. I have not played it. Um, but there are, you know, black game designers who mm-hmm. are, you know, working to kind of bring black culture to video to um, to board games. So Amari Akil mm-hmm. is a well-known um, board game designer who also has some really interesting game design diaries about some of the decisions that went into his games and like, you know, why he's, you know, making the specific design choices he's making for the player experience to be a certain way. Um, you know, um, Eric Lang is a yep. uh, is a black game designer that everybody knows about. So he's mm-hmm. like, I think he bears a lot of the pressure in our hobby of like being a go-to person. Mm-hmm. But he also makes really cool games and like has really interesting things to say on social media. And I also um, had a game that I still need to get a copy of. And he's across town. We need to hang out. Uh, and that is, so Damon Stone, uh, co-designed or developed to the point where he's a co-designer uh, a game about civil rights that came out this year from um 
the Dietz Foundation. And uh, the Zenobia Award is coming back up. So uh, one of the games that was a finalist for that was also another one of Dabin's games about okay. the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is rich. This is great. And, and again, I know that, you know, it'll eventually the list will be robust in this regard, but I'm excited that there's so many titles that at least I don't know about that are coming onto my radar. <clears throat> and like I said, I, I, I cry a little inside because I don't have the physical space to store all of these games. Like now, right now, you know, I, I mentioned in the, the pre-talk uh, that, I've been playing a couple board games or tabletop games or whatever. I'm playing non-digital games, partly because I'm old and my back hurts if I sit at my computer for too long. And I have to stand <laughs> up and stretch and I got to like move around. And so, you know, sometimes sitting at the dining room table, it's a, it's still sitting, but it's a different place to sit in a different chair and everything. So I'm like, you know, I need to get a break from the computer and so, or, or, you know, screens. And so um, I've been playing a couple games <clears throat> And not all of them have anything to do with the Black Games Archive, I think, so far. Although a game I'm playing right now has Black character in it. Maybe we can, you know, talk about that. Uh, but, you know, what I'm learning about the space is that it's, you know, an enormous amount of space is often needed. And we have one cabinet right now that is, like, the, the games cabinet. And I and when we just moved, so I know we have boxes that have some other kind of, you know, more traditional, like, Monopoly and all those kind of games. But, like, I think there's a distinction maybe between your popular like board games uh i don't know if they're different levels here but when i talk about monopoly or the game of life or something like that or maybe games that you can buy at target that is not you know the space that i'm thinking of you know for the archive necessarily and um so yeah i don't know if there's i'm sure that's a long going long so, no no well the target thing's changing though there are fancier schmancier board games yeah. making so it target me, yeah, yeah. Okay. target has yeah. target has some good games and that's 100 true and you're like to talk yeah talk about space right space is at a premium when you're talking about analog games because like we've talked about this i have uh three bookcases of 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 analog games downstairs right my my video games mostly live upstairs my analog games mostly live downstairs because about about 10 years ago now i replaced my dining room table with an eight foot uh slate table that i got um from the chemistry department so that we had enough space for board game night. That sounds so good. <laughs> I'm coming to your house. You got like all the consoles. Like that sounds like a wonderful. Way. I know. You can you can be the archive. You can be the physical repository for the uh, no. Archives, no, it can I be at your house, and people can knock on your door on Saturday morning and say, "Hey, can I get in? Can I play this game? Uh, you, have ba- you have babies, kids. I heard you have the one copy." <laughs> But I mean, and it's and it's interesting when we start talking about archives, right? And start talking about things that would fall in the under the Black Games Archive, because we one of the thirteen like taxonomic terms that we or taxonomic terms we use is is not necessarily like uh, a physical representation of blackness, but black situ like black situations or black culture based. And so I think about I think about games like Five Tribes. Right. Do you remember the five because five tribes like originally had like a slave card? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you had the slave card, you had to set you wow. didn't have to. You could sacrifice slaves and you could trade slaves, and there was all of this going on. And then like it became a real discussion 
And they actually changed the game and took the slave card out after the fact. But it had been out for several years at that point, if I remember correctly, right? Before yes. they before they republished that game. And so it is that, not the only game with that issue. It is not, right? So, but if if we don't have an archive that looks at those things, then that knowledge that that knowledge that it existed in the way that it did is lost. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we also have something called um, anti-blackness as a part yeah. of the regressive yeah. characterizations as a mm -hmm. part of the taxonomy. Oh. And that is because, you know, there might be something that has black characters, it references black culture, et cetera. But then politically, ideologically, it's fraught. Right. And it's problematic. And we didn't want to not archive those games, mm -hmm. but we wanted to be able to note that like this also exists. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And so we, we had that, we had that you talk about discussions, Trey and I had those discussions. I'm like, no, Trey, we're not putting that in the archive. And Trey was like, but we have to. No, well, fine. <laughs> I think we did sort of agree for now that if a game only has anti-blackness as yeah. its thing, as its thing that's sort of going for it, yeah. then we wouldn't put it because right. then it's much more likely that it is that it, that it exists for you know these really awful reasons like it was created you know like there's a bunch of donald trump type games i was like, gonna say there's a bunch games. of white supremacist games that yeah and we created. just didn't want to yeah. you know i just we just i'm exhausted emotionally and can't <laughs> do i don't want to deal with that um right as the main as the only contribution that it's making and that's mm -hmm. why it's there yeah uh, so if it just has black characters and anti-blackness, because those two, you know, that may be a twin thing, twin engine there, uh, then we are, you know, going to pass for now. For now. Um, See, I think it's interesting that you keep that conversation open, too. I mean, I think when we, you know, um, I already know, like, I'm going to run this podcast and be like, woke podcast. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> That's fine. I can live with that. Whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting to hear y'all talk about this. And I want to sort of pinpoint it because y'all don't talk about these things in terms of exclusion it's what needs to go in so that we have full information about what existed there are no secrets there's nothing that's being erased this is about preserving what was really there um and how have y'all's conversations about that looked like was that ever in doubt mm. or you know is it still a live conversation like that's actually really interesting <laughs> Well, I mean, I think Sam alluded to it that we're really different. Like, we really see the world differently and the games differently and everything. So um, this idea that it should be really open and it should be super flexible and we should see it as emergent that like, hey, look, what we're putting in today and how we're thinking about it today could certainly change, will change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think that that's a healthy thing and, and it's healthy to kind of have these discussions and then also to take it beyond us, right? To say that we want a community around this. We don't want to be making these decisions alone, right? We don't want to be, um, even in the critical conversations, like let's have other people in on this and sort of voice their engagement with uh, these works and with this history. It's so huge that we do that. And I think right now that might not be as evident in this current iteration of the Black Games Archive. Um, the collaborative like side of it is is visible, but it's not as visible as I think it will be. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that will bring a multiplicity, a multiplicity of voices and perspectives that are going to contradict. And I think that contradiction, those contradictions, those disagreements are healthy. 
um, they're 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 valued, right? And like they should be a part of this as well. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask one more serious question before we just kind of do softy stuff at the end here, uh, which is: so now that you're adding board games to the mm-hmm. Black Games Archive, um, what? kinds of changes in how you're able to classify the games exist between video games and board games board games are i think are interesting because there's so much that the player brings that i mean a video game you still as the player bring a lot but in board games you're really having to do a lot more of the creative work and a lot more of yourself i think Mm -hmm. enters the game Mm -hmm. so what does that mean for classifying a board game as as black or as any identity like yeah yeah i think that for example like my my example of like five tribes right which is not yeah. a, which is not about black characters right um but because it's talking specifically about chattel slavery mm-hmm. right and being and and because like as a player right uh, when i'm when i'm playing a game that involves chattel slavery as a black person Right. As an African-American person, I am going to read um, my own my own history right into that. I'm going to map it onto that because chattel slavery is a part of the history of African-Americans on this on this continent. Right. Right. Um, So I think that having those kinds of things, that's that's one of the reasons that our taxonomy is so has some has some terms that are so broad that talk about um that talk about context and talk about kind of situational or, or ask us to think about situational awareness as well and interpretation right and so we those fit well for video games but i think they also fit very well for uh for analog games for board games where we have a lot of visuals or for and see i i when i think of tabletop games i do think more of role-playing games right especially like when we start to think about role-playing games and the ways that people kind of create um through that space as well um so i think that there are a lot of terms um that also um, that also kind of carry over, right? Um, and then having someone like Aaron working with us, who whose focus is analog games, um, is is able to kind of think theoretically through it as well, um, and help us see things that um, that we might not otherwise see because that's not our focus. Right. So, I mean, I do because I do a lot of work and I teach a lot of game design and do research in game design. I still do a lot of work with analog games, but analog games are not my focus. Right. Video games are still my main focus. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Right now, the taxonomy is working in both registers. However, there are some modifications that we might have to make to it to speak Mm -hmm. more to the analog game side, you know, because we have a category called development and development is really broad like you know were you a writer were you artist whatever but because those teams tend to be smaller on analog games we might want to spell out some you know particular ways like were they a writer a designer a visual artist like who did this artwork like there may be a need to to be less broad in a way and specify the contributions uh because i can already see that like you know 
on Aaron's list, for example, he's really keeping close track of the designers, right? Like if they're co-designers or multiple people and spelling that out a lot more, it's pres presumably a lot easier to figure out than it is with some games too, where, where you have several hundred people working hundreds, on it, right? Hundreds of people. And someone <laughs> yeah. might say to us, I worked on that game. And we're like, okay, you worked, you, you, you get it. We're, we're development is the tag. However, on the analog game side, those folks might be a little more visible. So maybe we do want to kind of tweak that aspect of it. So it's going to be in conversation right now. The taxonomy mostly works. Voice acting, for example, will that work for analog games? You know, we might want to, what is the counterpoint to something like that, that we can flag as a thing. Cause yeah, like, like flavor text, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That kind of writing and stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting, but we do, we did feel strongly that like they exist in the same space. We didn't want, you know, to leave analog games out. It's going to strengthen for sure. And especially the historical approach, right? Because video games are still a really young medium. It's a really young industry <laughs> and I could mm -hmm. call myself young, you know, <laughs> because, um, <laughs> You know, born circa in the 1970s, like, hey, video games are still a relatively young medium. And um, I'm willing to bet, you know, that the history of analog games is going to stretch far before that. And the relevant games that come up on the radar are going to be far earlier than that. And I think that's important, too. Fantastic. So, softy question. What have y'all been playing recently that you've enjoyed? Yeah. Well, I'm always playing The Sims. I'm literally playing The Sims right now. Um, like, right now? <laughs> It's on. You know, <laughs> it's automatic. It's on. Uh, but here's my defense: is that I am teaching a class on The Sims, um, and I have we we had the task of having to play all versions of The Sims, and you know that's challenging a little bit. But uh, I am I love The Sims, and yeah, whatever. I I'm always playing The Sims. It was that's always a go-to thing that I'll be playing. Um, in terms of video games, I think. I've been playing a lot of stuff for my class. We just played the Stanley Parable uh, recently, and uh, that was a good experience. And in terms of board games, I want to mention that, okay, I played The Pursuit of Happiness, which is because Ooh. of The Sims. Because I was, I was like, there must be an analog game that does what The Sims do, that tries to simulate life that's not the um, game of life. And I found out in my research on The Sims that The Sims is, you know, really inspired to some extent by the board game, The Game of Life. But I thought, what has, what else has come out in the the board game, the analog game world that is like The Sims, that is about like playing through a lifespan or something? And the Pursuit of Happiness came up, and that game is massive. It is so hard and so huge. And, like, talk about back injuries and neck injuries. I hurt my neck because I was <sighs> leaning over the table because the board, it's so it's, it's huge. It's a huge board, all these cards. You know, I guess uh, there may be a term for this in the analog world. I don't know if it's called a, a space hog or table, table hog. Table hog. Oh my god, the thing. So I had to. We played it in my house for like a couple of weeks, and it was just on the table. Took up like nearly the whole table. And then because both my wife and I were starting to get this like soreness in our necks, we were like, that game has to. We have to wrap that up. Like let's let's put it back in the box for now. You know, like <laughs> even though I wasn't sort of satisfied that I like you know, 
engaged it enough. Um, we had to put it away for a while just to like stretch and you know have better posture. Uh, so then I switched to games that were um, solo games. Yes, because uh, I can't always rope my spouse into this. And I was like, that's a thing. I didn't even know that was a thing that you could play a solo. <laughs> this is the Beyond game. Solitaire podcast. Welcome to our club. Yeah, so I gotta listen to you. So, so this is the thing. I, now I'm addicted. And so I'm like, I was watching videos of like, oh best solo games you know to play and top 10 and top 10. I was like this is research I know it must be somehow I mean it doesn't directly relate to what I'm writing about but it's gonna make me a better scholar it's, I'm sure. it's research for the archive Trey yeah and I haven't played any that had to do with blackness yet except for um I have a game on the table downstairs well there's a game called the lost expedition I think it's yes. called and there's a car, there's one black character who's like in that. I'm like, I think this might fit in the archive. You're going through the Amazon. Uh, <laughs> so far as I know, it's just characterization, but it might be, you know, I don't know who is involved in making it and all that stuff. Um, anyhow, those are some of the games I'm playing. I'm learning how to play it. And I'm also really terrible at following directions and learning new rules. So that is a challenge for me in the analog <laughs> game world. However, thank you to YouTube because I will watch a video or two of other people playing, playing it and setting games, it up. Yeah. And then somehow with my brain and the way it functions, that helps a lot. And then when I read, because I cannot just read the manual, you know, how to play it and have it sink in. I've always needed someone to teach me how to play a new game. Uh, this is only true for, for analog games that I just can't absorb the rules just, you know, coldly, clinically presented in, <laughs> uh, you know, in a pamphlet. It just doesn't sink in. But if I right. watch people play the game, which I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised by, Sam. If I watch no. people play the game, I will I will get it. It'll click and then I'll try it out and then I can eventually teach someone how to play it. Wait till you have your first board game night where you buy like a new, like you buy a new, a massive game and you have like a regular, like crew of folks you play games with and y'all decide to to learn how to play the game and play the game in one night so you're sitting there for like 12 or 14 hours oh lord my legs are already going numb you know i we <laughs> we just moved and our neighbors across the street are huge board game analog game fans and they're a part of some kind of club so they've already roped us into going over there and playing games and like that day that it was all day it was it was literally i think we went there at like 1 yep. p.m or something and i like stumbled back across the street it was after midnight I was like, oh my Sounds god, what, right. what did I do with my day? You know? Sounds about right. What do with you days? <laughs> I was like, but, you know, and, and so yeah, it was actually a lot of fun, and I learned how to play a whole bunch of games that I would have been like, no, I'm not playing that, or you know, I, I don't know, I wouldn't just looking at it, it wouldn't have appealed to me, but in that context, playing them, it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, Sam. So I'm so glad we got to talk about that because I haven't had anyone to talk. Well, anyone you know nearby to talk to, except for across the street guys, and they've been on vacation, <laughs> so I couldn't even tell them about the pursuit of happiness. And if like, you are on Discord, I will I will read your messages about games anytime. <laughs> okay, well we have to connect because like, yeah, I'm all into the solo game thing now. It's like I can do this by myself and like just zone out, and it doesn't have to be a video game that I'm doing this with. You can even pretend you're avoiding screens and still game. Get your face. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Um, oof, my turn. Uh, so what am I playing? Okay, so I'm not out. Uh, this is gonna sound horrible. This semester has because I'm I'm back in the classroom like face to face for the first time in three and a half years. 
and uh, and I'm teaching two game studies courses that are specifically video games. Um, and so I am playing a bunch of video games or replaying because I played them all, right? The things that we're playing in 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 class. Um, I have one class that we're focusing on um, Zelda games, and specifically right now in class we're playing oh. Tears of the Kingdom. I love Zelda. I have a huge Zelda tattoo on my arm. Where is it? Right there. You see it? Yes. Hyrule. There we go. Um, you like? Uh, you've seen that one, Trey? There's the yeah. Hyrulean crest. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, um, and then like other smaller indie games in my other course. Uh, and so I'm playing a lot of games for class, but for myself. So <laughs> I always call it, a, this is a popcorn, what I call a popcorn game. It's a game that I know I can have fun with, but it's gonna never going to be anything new. And it's never going to be anything that I have to, like like Trey said, learn, learn how to play or focus too much on. So I've been playing a lot of Call of Duty lately um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I can veg out on Call of Duty. So I've been playing a lot of Call of Duty like in my off time, but I've also been playing a lot of Starfield, which is another like the the exploration um and just being able to veg out and explore space. Um so Starfield, Call of Duty, stuff that I'm playing for class and um well, St Starfield kind of took over from Baldur's Gate 3, which was I was playing a lot of because oh, I'm I was under also the a, spell of Baldur's yeah, Gate. Yeah, I was going to say I was also a D&D nerd when I was in high school, so uh, <laughs> and see, I'm old enough that that I was a part of like the the whole um, satanic panic thing um, with with Dungeons and Dragons when when you know they were and I'm from Michigan, right? And you know the the kid who disappeared in the tunnels was in Michigan, right? So they they were just a hundred percent sure. Our parents were hundred percent sure that we were doing all kinds of demonic stuff and we were going to die horribly in tunnels um, because because of Dungeons and Dragons. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yes, my grandparents once when I was a child told me not to ever play D&D &D, so you know what the first thing I did when I got to college was. Play D&D. &D. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then where can y'all be found online? Wait, I want to ask you what you're playing and if you have any ah. solo solo game recommendations. Uh, what am I playing? Okay, so I've been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3 and it's really embarrassing. I'm like mm -hmm. really into the romance plot lines and I feel like very bad about it except that i really don't i think that you can play however you want um yeah. <laughs> um i really want to play next a game called witchwood about like mm. being the witch of the woods and like helping people find the i don't really fully understand the game yet because i haven't played it but it just mm. the premise sounded really interesting so i'm gonna play the crap out of that at some point um in board game terms what am i playing right now i am playing my popcorn game right now is obsession Okay. Which is a game that's kind of like if Pride and Prejudice and Down Abbey had a baby that was a board game. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. Can I tell you that Pride and Prejudice is my is 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 probably well, it's my favorite classic. Mm -hmm. so, so in this game, you can get out. American heiresses in your hand who like give you a lot of money but cost you reputation. And like it's there's like very snooty flavor text. It's very entertaining. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> Um, I am playing, I'm doing review plays for a game called Crowbar, which is about trying to make your way up the beach at D-Day. Wow. Um, and it's by Herman Lippmann. And what am I I'm always like playing many things. Oh, I'm very excited. I'm about to do a preview of the Old King's Crown, which is a game that's going to 
crowdfund in a couple weeks now, 12 days from now. Um, and it's yeah. beautifully, oh my God, the art is amazing. Um, and it's designed by the guy who did the art, Pablo Clark. And it is a really fun game with a really killer solo mode and just the most lush art I have ever seen in a board game. And I'm, I'm willing to play on paper maps with like ugly sand colored hexes. Like it's fine. Mm-hmm. But this game has got me thinking about like the finer things visually <laughs> in, in my gaming life. Yeah, <laughs> right on. Do you ever go to board game like conventions, analog game conventions or conferences? Because I, I do. I, okay, cool. Actually, I'm going to be in San Diego. I was going to um, say there's one in San Diego coming up. Um, like SD people, Hiscon. Yeah, people in my program are going. Wait, what? Playing, Where yeah, are you no. going? I'm going to be there. Well, I wasn't going to go because I was like, am I really that into it yet? I'm on the cusp. And then I was like, historical games, I haven't even played any yet. So come hang out. You can try my game. I promise okay. it's good. Uh, <laughs> when, when are the date? When is it? Is it, is it in December? When it's is it? It's the first weekend of November. Oh, it's November. Coming. Oh, yes. wow. Fast. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I'm from San Diego, so I could just crash at my mom's place. <laughs> so it's the third through the fifth. Mm, third through the fifth of November. Yes. Okay. And I am very excited about it. It's going to be small and cool. In December, I'm going to PAX Unplugged in Philly. Okay. And then in April, I'm going to go to Circle DC, which is another small, like, war and historical games thing in DC. And I went last year. We we were in a Masonic room in, like, the Navy Masonic Lodge. There was, like, a coffin in there. It was so weird. (laughs) I was really there for it. Like... (laughs) Wow. Okay. I might look at I might I might try to attend that weekend. It's like a, at least it's a weekend and it's coming up. Yeah, but several people from USC are going to be there. Oh my gosh. Please tell them to say hi. I'm so excited about this now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um but uh yes, also so in the wind down cuz I want to do a little post chat too. Uh where can y'all be found online? Cuz y'all well, do more than just the the Black Games archive. But. Yeah, you. I'm still on Twitter. I heard that it's a dumpster fire, but I don't really, you know, check in that often. But I am Professor TMR on Twitter, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I I don't really have a super like like I said, I'm not super public facing. If you want to find me, that's where it is, or you can email me. I'm not gonna put my email because I really don't read them that often. <laughs> However, <laughs> if it's urgent, then maybe I will see it. Um, fantastic um and then sam i know that you are a streamer and this is also a good moment let's replug your podcast okay so my podcast is not your mama's gamer and um you can find me like anywhere you get your podcast from after 13 years i'm pretty good at making sure that we're out there but um the site is my nym gamer right so um dot com um and let's see i'm on Twitch and I'm Sophista on Twitch, a S A F F I S T A. Um, I am everywhere. I'm on, I'm on TikTok and Blue Sky and Twitter as Sophista, S A F F I S T A. Um, and then I'm also, uh, those are the best places to find me. You can find me anywhere. If you find any of those places, you'll find links to everywhere else you can find me. But yeah, those are the the places to find me. Fantastic. And I, of course, can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. So those of you out there, feel free to hit us up. Um, Trey, Sam, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed getting to talk to y'all and learn more about this archive. I'm super excited about what you're doing. 
this was a blast. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So for those of you who are out there, please check out the Black Games archive. Uh, and also like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming. <laughs>